Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition film today on Monday, June 27, 2016. Today's topic, Brexit, Remain, Regret, and You. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on the phone is John Maxfield. Later, we will have Dan Kaplinger, but for now, welcome, John. Thank you very much, Gabby. I'm excited to, to, to be here today. Oh, I know you are. <laughs> Um, just a warning, folks. Uh, this episode is hella long. You probably realized that when you clicked on it to listen, but I just want to reiterate, I'm sorry, we just had a lot to fit in today. Uh, basic structure is going to go something like this, a look at Brexit, what it means for Britain, what might, and I really want to emphasize that we that it is a might. We don't have a crystal ball, so we don't know what will happen, but what might happen, and what's going on with the big U.S. banks as a result. Uh, Dan will then join me on the back half of the show to talk about investing strategy. So let's dive right in. Brexit. Brexit is the topic on everyone's minds, just in case you somehow managed to miss the news. Brexit is a portmanteau of exactly what happened. Britain voted to exit the European Union. Um, This was a a, a referendum, so this isn't something that is actually pushed through yet, but um, this was completely unexpected. Yeah, I mean, it was completely unexpected from from the perspective that you know, nobody thought that actually anybody would win. I mean, we all knew that this referendum was coming up. They had announced it earlier in the year, and this, uh, all of this kind of been agitating in the United Kingdom for a couple of years, actually. But what's important to keep in mind is that, well, first of all, you know, we're a financial show. So, you know, you know a lot of you are probably investors. You've probably already seen what's happening right now to stocks. So, you know, in the United States, the S&P 500, which is like our main large cap index, is down something like 5% since last Thursday's vote. The FTSE, which is the the analogy, is kind of the analogous index, is the large cap index in the United Kingdom. It's actually down only six percent. I mean, that's a that's a huge move for such a large index when you consider that those are the 100 biggest and most profitable companies in the United Kingdom. But that's still, when you consider how momentous Brexit Brexit is, that isn't that substantial of move. However, you know, this being the financial show. It, there's actually a much more substantial impact on financial stocks. And so if you look at, you know, let's say the, the KBW Bank Index, which tracks the 24 largest banks in the United States, it's down 11.2% just since last Thursday. I mean, these are, these are very large moves um, that we're seeing in stocks. And, and to just throw out one more number uh, to kind of, you know, to, to, to kind of bring home how large of a, a, you know, how big of an impact this is having on stocks, the FTSE 250, which includes uh, not only the UK's 100 biggest uh, companies, but also it drops it down 150 more. So, so 150 smaller companies are included. That that is down by 14.2 percent. So this is a really uh, monumental thing for stocks right now. Yeah, and I don't know if I don't know what people's backgrounds are when they listen, but you're you may be thinking like, oh, Britain just voted to to leave the EU. I don't understand what the big deal is, but it is it is a really big deal. Yeah, I mean, this is, in my opinion, this is the most important thing on the global stage that has happened since World War II. The one other thing that that really factors in there is China's opening up in the 70s and 80s and emerging into a superpower to really balance out the United States in the world. And here's really why, you know, you you think like, oh, well, you know, Britain is just like a like, you know, collection of a couple islands. You know what I mean? Why is it leaving potentially leaving the European Union such a big deal? Well, the reason it's such a big deal is because, you know, if you look back on the past, you know, couple hundred years, what we have seen is a movement towards global unification. And 
as we have seen this movement towards global unification, we have experienced, particularly after World War II, one of the most peaceful periods in recorded human existence. Especially, the, especially in Europe, because I'm not going to say that all parts of the world are super peaceful right now, but Europe used to be one of the most war-torn areas of, of the globe, really. And now it's right. not. It's, it, it was this, it, I mean, it is, I still, I guess, this confederation of states that have agreed to, to create an economic zone. And that's what I think a lot of people miss is that the Eurozone is primarily an economic zone. Yes, there's a lot of political benefits that come along with it, but the economic uh, realities of it mean that those countries are tied together in such an economic way that it makes it um, politically unlikely that they would want to go back to back into war against each other. Right. I mean, and to your point about Europe, I mean, like, let's just go back a few hundred years. You had the Hundred Years War. I mean, like, who else has a Hundred Years War? You know what I mean? You had the Thirty Years War. You had the Franco-German War. You had World War One. You had World War Two. Then they decide, you know what? This isn't a good way to operate a continent. Let's get together. Let's let's be peaceful. And it's turned into the largest collective economy in the world. I mean, the United States like single-handedly is the largest economy. But when you put all those countries together in Europe, I mean, this is an enormous economic might. Now, just to give a little bit more historical context in terms of, you know, kind of how all these things work. So one of the reasons is that why, what's going on in in Britain? Why would they, you know, be voting for something like this? And and this is kind of how I look at it from a historical perspective. Um, So in the 1920s, we go back then, we had this huge boom, right? that led to a bust, that led to economic problems. Those economic problems lead you know, certain people in certain countries to blame other countries or other types of people, other types of religions for their problems. That leads to conflict. That conflict, obviously World War II, that you know, we then have the United Nations, right? We have the European Union. That settles all this peace. But then we have the financial crisis of 2008, which was the biggest economic event since the Great Depression. That leads to economic uncertainty. That leads to this movement towards nationalism and kind of blaming immigrants and other people for problems. And so that's kind of where we're at. It's like an almost exact replica of history. Yeah. And just an FYI for listeners, the, the Great Depression, it hit the United States really hard, but it was kind of a global event even in the 1920s. Like, I know that the, the global system wasn't quite as in place back then, but we had really strong connections to Europe. So it, it hit them, too. Um, so now we're, we're in this, like, kind. we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, Britain voted to, to exit the European Union. They decided to leave. Um, this is going to be really interesting for financials because the UK, while it does make some things, I'm not 100% sure what, um, a lot of its economy is focused around their financial sector. Right. And so, you know, this is something we've talked about in the past, Gabby. That if you look at, you know, what, you know, how you grow an economy, it's actually a really simple equation, right? Economic growth comes from changes in capital, changes in labor, and changes in productivity. Those three things. So if you increase one, you hold the others two equal, you're going to increase your economic growth. If you decrease one, holding the other equal, you're going to decrease economic growth. So let's just break that down and look at what a Brexit, if they go through on this, what a Brexit will do to those components. So if you look at, let's first start with capital, right? So to your point, what is Britain's economy predicated on? on? Is it predicated on, you know, manufacturing and exports? No, right? I mean, 
if you've ever been to the United Kingdom, you know how ridiculously expensive it is there. And that means that labor there must be really expensive, which means that on a global manufacturing basis, it's not going to be able to compete against your China's, your Vietnam's, your Philippines, right? So what is its economy predicated on? It's predicated on its financial sector, right? London is one of the financial centers in the entire world. In fact, if you look at, there's, a, there's an index that traces like, what are the biggest financial centers in the world? And London and New York are tied. So you say, well, why is London such an important financial center? Well, one of the reasons is that the pound is a reserve currency for all of these different countries in the world. So you have your central banks, your sovereign wealth funds, holding pounds, dollars, euros, and Japanese yen in order to help them uh, kind of uh, smooth out uh, the, the fluctuations in their own currencies. Well, the reason they hold those four currencies in particular in reserve is because they, are, they have the deepest financial markets and because those currencies are the most stable in the entire world. Well, if you look at what's happened since the Brexit vote last Thursday, the pound has dropped something like 11 or 12%, which it is now at its lowest point in 30 years. And we are just at the beginning of this. So, I mean, and it's impossible to say if it will go up or down from here, but it very realistically could do both, and it very realistically could go down, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, right now, so, right at this very instant, the British pound equals $1.32, which is right. insane. I, I can't remember the last time it was that low, probably because the last time it was that low was before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> Which is insane, <laughs> but this right. is, but this is part of the reason that the Brexit coverage has been so obsessed with what was going on with the pound, right? And so then you think like, okay, so then how does this factor into that equation for GDP for for growing your GDP? Which just to be clear, there is no doubt that growing your economy is a very important thing. Okay, I mean like that's a really important thing. So what happens when you know if its currency? were to then go into this period where it loses a ton of value and fluctuates a lot more, there is going to be less incentive to hold it as a reserve currency. And if people do not, if other countries do not hold it as a reserve currency, they're going to pull their money out of that economy. And that leads to a loss of capital. And again, GDP is a function of capital, labor, and productivity. So if you decrease capital, you're going to decrease GDP, economic growth. Okay. Now the other piece, that we have going on here is your labor, right? So one of the big reasons that um, you know Brexit was 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 supported was because there's this fear uh, there's this fear about you know too many immigrants flooding into the country. Well, immigrants flooding into a country, as a general rule, actually increase your economic output because you're boosting labor. So if they were to say kick out all these immigrants that have come from all these different European countries and all of the world into the United Kingdom under these open border policies, you are going to decrease your labor, which will necessarily decrease your GDP. And then on top of that, if you institute more stringent immigration standards, so it will slow the trickle or the, it'll slow the flood of immigrants into a trickle, that will then further throttle your GDP growth. So the big thing for the United Kingdom is that, yes, I mean, we all understand that like all the all, everybody's having issues right now in the world as a result of the kind of the, the layover from the financial crisis. But it's by voting to separate yourself from the European Union, you are almost necessarily condemning your country to a, a decrease in economic output. 
Right. And like I was saying earlier, part of being in the European Union, you came, it comes with a lot of economic benefits. Attached to that labor is that we don't really know what's going to happen. Like Great Britain is going to have to renegotiate all these things with the EU. So who knows? Like, do they still have free passage between the European Union and the UK? Can people who are from the UK work anywhere else in Europe and vice versa? We don't know. Right. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, here's what's interesting. So if you look at the coverage since the Brexit vote came through, one of the things that we have noticed is that all of the main supporters are now backing off of all of the promises that they made in order to convince their constituents to vote in favor of it. Let me give you some example. Boris Johnson, right? So he's, he was the former London mayor who's really been kind of like the front man for the whole Brexit movement. He has now come out and he's basically been like a totally off the scene since the vote came out, right? So this is the leader of the movement who's basically receded behind the curtain since all of this happened, okay? He has basically come out and said, okay, wait, wait, wait. There's that, the, the one thing he said is, oh, there's really no hurry to invoke the articles that would require, that would then start the process of the United Kingdom leaving. So you sort of think about that for a second. The, the, most, the, the biggest advocate for this push is now saying, well, maybe we should slow down on this. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. I mean, that's the implication is that maybe he's thinking it, it wasn't actually such a good idea. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is that oh, the, another claim that they've backed off from is that they're saying, well, look, well, we're actually, no, 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 we're actually not going to stop immigration coming into the country. You know, it may just slow it a little bit. Yeah. Right. Well, so now they're backing off on that. What's really interesting about that is I looked it up before we came on the show. Um, the total fertility rate in the UK is in 2014 was 1.83. So that means um, the population isn't replacing itself. So for the population to re- replace itself, your total fertility rate has to be two. Right. So you have two kids and when the two parents die, they take their place in the population. So their, their population isn't replacing itself. And you have to remember that this includes births to women who have immigrated to the UK. And this also includes women who are UK citizens but gave birth to children outside the country, which was around 27% of those births. So immigration is really propping up the UK population. Yeah, which props up its economy, right? And, the, and this, you brought this point up earlier. Being a part of a free trade zone is really important, right? So like, let's say, you know, I, again, I don't know, like, you know what thing maybe let's say british tea right so you have british tea it's going to earn really low margins right as you export that and the european countries are major trading partners for the united kingdom major major trading partners for the united kingdom okay well your margins on tea are going to be extremely slim because that's such a competitive uh, 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 market and because it's a commodity right what is as soon as you start entering frictions into that trade process, those frictions uh, uh, insert costs into that. And in a commoditized market where your margins are already really slim, you're going to impact some of those exporters. So presumably, if the trade barriers were to, you know, if trade barriers were to come up as a result of all of this, you're going to also hurt whatever exports Britain is exporting to the European continent. And there's just one more thing I want to point out about kind of the rationale for now we're, that we're really learning that a lot of these rationales you know, don't, weren't really grounded in fact, is that you know, kind of the, one of the, the, the most picturesque pieces of the whole Brexit movement was this bus right, that traveled oh, all Boris over the United Johnson Kingdom. The Boris Johnson bus. Right, the <laughs> Boris Johnson bus. 
And on the side of the bus, okay, it claimed that the United Kingdom was sending 350 million pounds a week to the European Union, basically subsidizing the European Union. Well, it turns out that the European Union was actually kicking back about 200 million pounds a week in subsidies back or in kind of rebates back to the United Kingdom. So the actual, the net difference is only 150 million pounds on a weekly basis. And then you have to factor in the value of being a part of the European Union, which among other things, you know, you have the re reduction in, in trade friction, right? Mm -hmm. Which helps the British economy. On top of that, because all these countries are now basically coexisting, nobody has to spend all this money on their militaries, right? Because right. they're all together. Right. So it's, it saves all this money for them. So you, so you just, you, once you really dig into the rationales for leaving, you think, wow, you know, you can, you, you can start to understand why the voters are, are having buyer's remorse. Yeah, what, what the newspapers are calling regret. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that. That's awesome. Yeah, so this is this is really interesting. Um, when I looked at the news coverage on Saturday, the EU had told the UK, like, well, if you're going to leave, then you need to leave as fast as possible, which is, you know, a fair thing, I guess, to say. But it sounds like now they're saying, you know, we'll give you we'll give you a chance to reevaluate. And I know that um, quite a few uh, newspapers have run articles. I don't I don't know because this, we're just so we're just so early in. I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but it sounds like a lot of polling places have actually had voters call in and say that they regret their vote and would like to change it, please. The other thing to keep in mind is that a large portion of the young population who voted voted in favor of staying because they recognize the benefits to their future of being a part of this huge economic union. But the problem was that when you break down who actually did the voting, a larger proportion of older people voted, and they obviously have less to benefit in the future from this. So there's one, there's, I saw this thing on Twitter, I mean, this is horrible, but like, there's a young person who's in the United Kingdom put this up, he said, when I'm on this, on the metro, or on, on the tube now, and I see an older person, I'm no longer going to move my seat. It's an eye for an eye. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that really is a generational issue over there. And it, it, I'll tell you, unless they reverse this thing, it's a very unfortunate thing for the younger, for the younger generations in, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'm really interested to see is what, what happens with Scotland. Because if this referendum had happened before the Scottish uh, independence referendum, Scotland would have left. Like, hands down. Scotland would have left. Scotland, the entirety of Scotland voted to stay in the EU. So I don't really know what that what 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 the future holds for that. It sounds like the UK is in for a bit of a battle, both from the from the EU and internally from Scotland and from its young people. So th this is really interesting. But we have to move on in order to stay on time. Um, so can you give our listeners a little bit of background on what has happened to bank stocks since Brexit? Yeah, so bank stocks, you know, this kind of we kind of touched on this at, at the beginning. So the S and P five hundred is down something like five six percent. The the FTSE is down something like the same same amount since the since the Brexit vote. But bank stocks are down twice, if not a little bit more than that. So the KBW Bank Index again, this tracks the twenty four large cap banks in the United States. It's down eleven point two percent since then, uh, since the closing price on I think last Thursday, which we we learned the results of Brexit um, uh, Thursday after trading hours. Had closed, um, and so it's down by 11.2 percent. Bank of America is down 12 percent. So they're being hit roughly twice as hard as stocks in general. 
Yeah. And you might be asking yourself why. Um, there's a bunch of reasons why. I mean, partially it's just that the financial system is so global and interconnected now that what happens in Great Britain, unfortunately, has a pretty big impact on what happens here in terms of our banking. That's exactly right. So if you if you look at the reasons they're being hit hard, banks are being hit hard, let, let's just kind of go through it. There's four or five. So the first is that this uncertainty in the global economy is causing volatility in the asset markets, so debt and equity markets. And this this volatility is causing trading revenue and investment banking fees to fall at the major universal banks. Okay, So that's the first thing. The second thing is that by impacting the confidence of businesses in terms of being able to have any idea what you know how what everything is going to look like out of this it's reducing their incentive it will induce their reduce their incentive to invest in their businesses and when you reduce a business's incentive to invest in its businesses you will necessarily reduce the demand for loans and we've talked about this in the past banks what they do they make money essentially by selling loans so if you if there's less demand for loans they're going to make less money third your higher dollar, so the British, the pound fell, the euro fa- fell, uh, the Japanese yuan has fallen, the yen or the, the Chinese uh, currency has fallen. The only one that has increased relative to the dollar is the Japanese yen. And so, what happens when the dollar increases even further in value than it has been since since the financial crisis? Is that that reduces U.S. exports? It hits fin- it hits profits of large U.S.-based multinational companies that are earned in other countries. And all of this stuff lowers economic activity. And if you lower economic activity, again, that will have that will translate into lower demand for loans. And it could also translate, in fact, into higher loan losses if this were to push the U- U.S. economy into, say, a recession or something along those lines. Right. The and, final and thing. Hold on. So just just so listeners know, the reason that this is happening is be, like why this whole thing with why um, the pound going down in the U.S. dollar increasing is not great for the United States. Like you think, oh, our currency is getting stronger. That's good. It makes our products more expensive for people to buy abroad, so they're less likely to buy them. So companies make less money. Additionally, like with the loans, um, if you if the if the loan amount is in dollars, but you're paying it back in a different currency, like, uh, you know, like yeah. you're gonna have to make a lot more to pay that back now. <laughs> yeah, and to that point, if you look at like a J.P. Morgan Chase, it's got something like. $50 billion worth of cross-border exposure to the European continent. So you have loans that are priced, you know, being paid back in dollars, but are priced over there in, the for, in, in their own currency. So as those lose, it's going to be harder to service that debt. Yeah, and this all impacts uh, interest rates as well, right? That's exactly right. So the, the final two things, and this is a big thing, you know, for a long time, there's conversation that the Federal Reserve was on the verge of increasing interest rates as, you know, unemployment had dipped below 5%. Inflation was starting to, sh- to show signs of life again. Well, the Federal Reserve came out last week, actually before the Brexit vote, and said, "Look, like the economic after the May jobs report, which showed the lowest increase in jobs growth on a monthly basis in over five years, the Federal Reserve came back and said, "Look, like we're actually going to be less aggressive in terms of raising rates. We're not going to raise them in June, at least at the at the very least. And now with the Brexit vote and all that, all that's happening, that is going to probably further delay that timeline. And the reason that matters for banks is because banks make money." Obviously, off their loan portfolios, and a lot of these loan, a lot of their loan portfolios are indexed to the current interest rates. So, as interest rates go up, they will earn more interest income from those portfolios, which will then boost their revenue. But as interest rates stay low, you know, it'll it 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 just produces a stagnant revenue environment for banks. And then the final reason that this is bad for banks. Um, 
is that, you know, and this is with respect to universal banks, that is those that have both commercial and investment banking operations, is because, and, and those, and particularly ones that have large bases in London, which is JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, um, all those big, you know, fancy high finance banks in the United States, they're going to have to, assuming this goes through, um, they are going to have to probably move a lot of their people that are based in London to the European continent. Because what our banks would do is they would send their employees to London on with passports, and then, which is a major financial center, but then they could operate anywhere in the European continent because the passport was good anywhere. But now they're going to have to send them over with, you know, to, to these actually into the European continent, assuming the, the referendum actually gets put into effect. Um, and that will cost money just because they're having to reorganize their operations. Yeah, and you might be asking yourself why bank stocks and the pound, um, all of them fell so much so quickly. It's because since no one really thought that Britain was going to vote to leave, it wasn't already priced into the market. So, like, the market just corrected itself really, really hard all at once. Right. And let me make two really important points to bank investors or anybody even thinking about bank stocks or owning bank stocks. It just so happened that last Thursday, we also got some incredibly good news, right? That was when the, the annual stress test results were released. And what that showed, it was the first time since the financial crisis that all of the banks, that is, these are banks that have $50 billion worth of assets on their balance sheet or more, every single one of them passed the stress test. And in fact, if you dig into the results at, like, say, a Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase, they had so much excess capital after the stress test assumed things like unemployment shot up to 10%, equity prices fell by 50%, home values lost 25% of their value, even after assuming all of those things and looking at the, the, the hypothetical impact that that would have on bank balance sheets, Bank of America still had something like, and don't quote me on this, I, I don't remember the actual figure, but I mean, tens of billions of dollars in excess capital above and beyond the regulatory minimum. So. The problem isn't that our banks are in threat of, say, failing like they were during the financial crisis. What we're, what we're seeing now in the bank stocks is a reflection of the fact that investors are coming to terms with the fact that their profits are just going to be depressed or likely depressed as a result of what's going on. Yeah, um, that actually leads me perfectly into my next segment. I'm going to say good Bye to John, and thank you for joining us. And hello to Dan Kaplinger to talk to us about investment strategies. Hey, Gabby, good to be here. Awesome, I'm really glad that you can join us today. Um, our, our, uh, we we wanted to kind of reiterate what the Motley Fool's general philosophy was when it comes to these mini, I don't, uh, crisis is the wrong word. These mini economic dips. Um, that this is this is really an opportunity, especially if you're a long-term investor, to pick up shares on the cheap. Um, especially if you have money that you've set aside for investing, this is such a great time to buy because everything is a lot cheaper now, right? Yeah, yeah, we've seen this so many times in the past where it seems like the scariest possible time to put money into the market, but time in, time out, it has also turned out to be one of the best times to put money into the market. And so. Even though a lot of people are running scared right now, some of the most successful investors, they're salivating. They're ready to buy into the stocks they've been looking at for a long time. At prices, they're a lot cheaper than they were just uh, you know early last week. Yeah, right now is a great time to be a long-term investor and not a short-term investor. And we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some ways to 
take advantage of the situation, I guess. Uh, just things that you could set up and just have them kind of running continuously in the background so you don't even notice them. Yeah, and really, I mean, you know, one of the one of the hallmarks of a, of a strong investment plan is that you think up front how you're going to handle situations like this, how the plan is going to deal with suddenly having an opportunity to get shares of either stocks you like or mutual funds, exchange trade funds, whatever it is, at a cheaper price. And one of the easiest ways to do that is really to set something up in advance. It's called an automatic investing program. And basically what it involves is you pick a certain amount of money that you're going to take out of your bank account and put it towards investments. Uh, you know, what the amount is doesn't matter as much as the fact that it's automatic. It happens without you doing anything. You set it up once, you can forget about it at that point, and then month in, month out, that money goes to work for you. And in situations like this, where the stock market has suddenly gotten a lot cheaper, that same amount of money goes further for you because the cheaper shares, you can pick up more shares with the same amount of money. Right. Um, and so, I think the thing that you are starting to refer to here is dollar cost averaging, which is an example of an automatic investment program. Um, dollar cost averaging is, is a really, really neat concept. Uh, the idea is that you make a schedule where you say, I'm going to send, for the sake of easiness on the podcast, $100 a month to my investment account. and um, I have it set to buy these stocks automatically. And if stocks are really expensive, you buy less. And if stocks are really cheap, you buy more. So the cost of the stock kind of averages out. So, yeah, Gabby, I can give you a good example of how that works. Say that you take that $100 you were just talking about and you are interested in a stock, it trades for $25 a share. When you do the math, your $100 will buy four shares of that stock at $25 a share. Makes sense, right? Right. But if you cut, the price of the stock by 20%. Say you have a 20% correction. Now suddenly those shares cost just $20. Well, your $100, now it's going to buy five shares for $20. And so you get to take advantage of the fact that the stock fell in price. Basically, even though you're putting the same amount of money in, you're actually buying more stock, which is exactly what you want to do in a situation where the price has fallen. And now, similarly, in the future, if the when the stock bounces back to $25, that bargain period will be over. You'll go back to that four share buy instead of the five shares, but you'll have taken advantage of that short-term dip in the market. And that's exactly what you want to be thinking about doing in situations like this. Right. And the really great thing about this is that this is happening automatically. Um, so it's not even something you have to think about, uh, which is why it's so important to always kind of be doing your homework and have an idea of what you are trying to buy and what you want to buy and have these plans set in place ahead of time. That's exactly right. And it's really valuable because if you actually had to do something, then you'd second guess yourself and you'd think, boy, should I buy it now? Should I wait for an even better price? Making it automatic is the best way to make sure that it actually happens and that you get the benefits of it. Yeah. Um, another example of one of these plans is a DRIP plan, is what it's called colloquially, but that is a dividend reinvestment plan. That's right. And that goes with, if you own stocks that pay dividends, you have a couple of options. You can either have the company pay the dividend to you in cash. But what a lot of people do instead is, instead of taking that cash, maybe they don't need the income right now, 
Instead, they tell the company, hey, keep my dividend and buy some extra shares with it. Again, this kind of acts the same way as an automatic investment program does. Every quarter that the stock pays that dividend, it goes right back in to buy additional shares. And you'll find over time, you know, a lot of people, if they start out with, say, 100 shares of a dividend stock, you know, you hold on to it for years and years and years. Eventually, you get to the point where the shares you bought with dividends are more than the shares that you originally bought with your original purchase. And so that really shows you just how valuable those dividends can be for a long-term investor. And the really cool thing about drip investing is that with uh, drip plans, you are allowed to buy portions of stocks, which is not something you can do on the stock market. That's right. If you say, you know, if you have X dollars and X cents, your company will let you buy, I think it's all the way down to 10 thousandths of a share so that you don't, you never have to worry about, well, you know, is my dividend big enough to buy a whole share of, you know, some company like Google that's got, you know, like the $600, $700 share price. No, you can get a fractional share and that lets you get into those investments, even though they have a high share price. Yeah. And then our final example of an automatic investment program is a 401k contribution, something that I'm sure I hope a lot of you have set up to automatically go into your account from your paycheck every month so you don't even have to think about it. That's right. I mean, it's just one example of the way that you in that case, you have it taken directly from your paycheck and it stays at your company. The automatic investment plans that we've been talking about before, that usually works. It's taken out of your checking account or your savings account. Once your paycheck's already hit your bank account, that's when the financial institution comes in. But whenever it comes out, the important thing is that it's being invested regular basis over and over again, sticking with a long-term plan, which is your best chance at financial success. Definitely. Um, I, I want to reiterate for our listeners that what's going on right now is just a bump into the road. It's not the end of the road. and. Um, I really, I really love biology. I don't know, I don't know if you guys knew that about me, but um, this is a great time to be an opportunistic scavenger. This is a great time to be a turkey vulture and swoop in and pick up shares at a discount that someone else wrecked for you because it turns out that 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 deer that you're picking at, that dead deer, it's actually a zombie deer. It's gonna pop right back up and walk away. But right now is a really good time to grab grab a little piece of it while you can. That might be a gory analogy for some of our listeners, but this this is just this is a this is a really exciting time to be an investor and a biologist. That's an awesome analogy, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad you liked it. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add, Dan? No, just reiterating everything that you just said. You know, these situations are difficult to keep in perspective when they're happening, but in hindsight. The most common regret is that people didn't take advantage of the opportunity when it was there for them. So don't make that mistake. Take a look at your portfolio. Think about the things that you can do to take advantage of the situation while it's here, because there's no guarantee it's going to be here for very long. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Thank you, John. Um, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus if you voted in the referendum or wish you could have. And thank you very much to Anne Henry, today's totally rad producer, and thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week.